boys, we're back. It's over a Skype connection because we are responsible <laughs> citizens, but we are back, back straight is back, and we are going to put COVID-19 in isolation. We're going to socially distance ourselves from this crappy <laughs> pandemic, which is just putting everything on hold. It's jeopardizing the Olympics, but we can still podcast, which is what matters. And we're going to move away from a world in which surviving is the priority. And we're going to move into somewhere where we are thriving. And that is the middle distance landscape in global athletics, specifically via the medium of our brilliant British men's contingent. And I cannot remember who it was, but one of you pointed that out a few weeks ago, promised some ridiculous haphazard middle distance <laughs> men's special. And lo and behold, here we are. Who was it who said that? It's me. It was Jody. I am a man. I'm a man. Of, I'm a man of my word. I did slightly regret saying let's do a middle distance men's um, special because it's not really our comfort zone. It's not sprint queens, is it? But we've pulled it together, haven't we, Claire? It might not be women sprinting, but it's incredibly exciting. And I think the process of collecting the interviews for this episode has really hammered home to me just how exciting it can be. But for those of you listening for the first time to this podcast, we're getting ahead of ourselves in all the excitement. This is the Backstreet Boys and Girl Athletics podcast. I'm Claire. I'm Jodie. I'm Bea. This is Athletics's most irreverent, error-strewn <laughs> and tongue-in-cheek podcast. We really, really hope you enjoy it. Hi, I'm Dina Asher-Smith and you're listening to the Backstraight Boys. British men are absolutely dominating on the world stage. Well, where they're not dominating, they're making finals, they're running better than they have done for decades, and we're starting to see ridiculous things like one, two, threes at European Junior Championships and having three British men towing the start line of a world championship final in Doha. So with that in mind, we've been out and about, haven't we? Journalising. Yeah, absolutely. Journalising. Seeing us out there and speaking to some of the biggest names in the sport today. Claire, when I when I said let's do a middle distance special, I kind of regretted it because it's not our comfort zone. Is it? <laughs> <laughs> Men's middle distance is absolutely not our comfort zone. But we've pulled it out of the bag. Even if I say so myself, we've got some really good interviews. Some huge names on the podcast. I wanted to start with you two and your thoughts on this as a topic because without making you two seem too old, I wasn't around <laughs> when Cramco and Yvette were running those ridiculous times and making a name for themselves. So with... 40 years of athletics adoration behind you what's it been like following men's middle distance running in the uk can i just say um it is our birthday tomorrow i won't say exactly how old we are but let's just say we're old enough to remember the 1980 olympics so <laughs> <laughs> that, 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 gives you, that gives you some idea only just only, only just, remember yeah. it. <laughs> um but um Think back, like the, the golden, supposedly golden era, era we've had recently of your Mo and your Jess and your Greg, etc. Um, that was men's middle distance running in the eighties. You know, Co, Cramavet, Peter Elliott, and there was lots of other names as well. You know, who, who were running. Well, I was just going to say that because you've got people like David Sharp, European silver medalist, yeah. Steve Hurd, European indoor gold medalist, Tom McKean, Steve Crabb, Tony Morrell, people who yeah. were running the three thirty three, three thirty four. And so it wasn't just the upper level of people who were winning gold medals on a consecutive um, basis, but there was, an, there was a really good standard overall. Now, there's lots of reasons for that, and there's lots of reasons why it went into decline as well. But it was one of those eras that we still talk about today and we will always talk about because it was we dominated yeah. in, this, in this field for a decade. And that we, don't, we haven't seen that since in, in, any, in any event all at the same time. We've not had that dominance across the board. We might have had individuals, but to dominate. And what, what, what were and are 
some of the most popular events in the sport. So the 1500 is always called like a blue ribbon event, isn't it? And for us to win like consecutive Olympics and get additional medals, it was all about, it really was a special time. And when you look back, it's not as if we've had the Kenyans come since, which obviously, not just the Kenyans, you know, the, the Africans in general come since, which has changed the landscape as far as middle and long distance running is concerned. But if you look back at the times that were running back then, um, Steve Cram ran like 329. Sebco is like on 141 for the 800. These are ridiculous times that are still yeah. way, way, way <laughs> up there in the all-time list. Um, what then happened was, I think, as I say, the Africans came. The, also the pressure, I'm sure, like we had that time. And when, when the time goes, disappears a bit, I think the pressure on the next generation coming up to repeat that, it just didn't happen for whatever reason. We had other great athletes. We had like sprinters started coming, and, and you know we had we had yeah, the Olympus and John Regis, etc. We had more women coming to the fore, um, and the, the the middle distances just fell to, to pieces a bit. You know, we always had we always had good people. There was always people around. They just weren't a lot of them all at the same time, and they weren't necessarily consistent. So. John Mayock, um, Anthony Whiteman, Andy Badley, Michael East, and um, Curtis Robb in the, in the, in the 800. Um, yeah. We always had good quality athletes who could make finals, sometimes win the odd medal. Um, there were certainly medals that we won in indoors and, and the Europeans and that. But we just yeah. didn't have that strength in depth that we suddenly see creeping back. And also what happened was... You know, like, I think the other week I had a little bit of a rant about us always comparing stuff to the past yeah. when you conflate the past into... So we did have people that were doing all right. They were getting medals at European level in indoors, but that wasn't good enough. So there was still a criticism of people, even who were, who were world-class athletes, but they weren't Olympic gold medal winners. And therefore, why haven't we got these? These people are rubbish. These people aren't good enough, which is not inspiring, no. is it? But at the same time, we had great hurdlers. We had great pet athletes. We had great sprinters. Triple jumpers. So Javelin throwers. Triple jumpers. Yeah. Exactly. So you can't always have everything. So it's a balancing act. Um, and as I said in the last few weeks, I feel like at the moment we've got a good, got good lot of talent across all events, which is good. But the men's middle distance in the last two, three years has come to a level again where we are talking about people who are, like you said, getting to world championship finals, three of them in the 1500. Not so successful in the 800 this year, but the times were, were very decent in the 800 this year. The senior crop are definitely flying the flag right now, but also, and we'll touch upon this a little bit later on, but the juniors are so, so exciting. Of the 12 available medals of uh, the middle distance events in the European under 20s and under 23s last summer, Great Britain won six. Oh, wow. <laughs> we won half of the available medals, which is just sensational, including that famous one, two, three in the men's 800 metres, in which our fastest runner wasn't even present. What do you think we can attribute that to? Well, I mean, to have that much talent around at one time, I, I don't know what to what to attribute that to, mm. because I think that, that's, that's luck. But also, just time-wise, we do have a great system. We do have, like, the BMC, British Milers Club, who put on these paced races for people to get times. And we do have a good junior system, um, which is better than a lot of countries. So while there are issues with... The, the feed through from juniors to seniors and um, uh, training and coaches and all the rest of it. I do think compared to a lot of countries, we actually do have a, a good junior system. But also there's just a lot of talent out there at the moment and success breeds success. We've always been quite good at the juniors, especially at European level. I think Jake was world uh, European junior champion. Josh was European, European junior champion. So there's always been something to aspire to. Um, it just so happens we've got a lot of talent around all at the same time. And 
we'll have to see how they progress into the senior ranks because being a junior is one thing, uh, progressing to junior to seniors is obviously different. I would just also say, I think that we talked about this on the women's side, but I'm sure it also feeds into the, the men's. I think uh, Kelly's double Olympic win in 2004 was a game changer. Mm. I think it showed that um, male or female, it could be done on the world stage against the Africans by British people. And I think following that on in the last few years with Mo, which is another subject I'm sure we'll come to another time. Um, <laughs> but that also showed youngsters growing up that um, it wasn't to be afraid of. Um, they weren't, these weren't events that you, you couldn't be successful in. And it's not just us, is it? Look at the, you know, look at the Inga Brixes in Europe. I think there's kind of been a bit of a resurgence. And I feel we've talked about this in the 5 and 10, but it could also be sort of following on in the 8 and 15. The money's on the roads. So mm. I feel like there are a lot of talent as kind of African talent has been doing the roads, as we've seen some crazy, crazy times just in the last few weeks, you know, from, from Africans running on the roads. Um, so I do feel like maybe the track is slightly more kind of hospitable to um, European and possibly uh, American runners than it maybe was 10, 20 years ago. Also, let's just give a little shout out because we're talking about the men's distance, but men's middle distance runners for a while. And the reason we're celebrating that is because we haven't had... Um, and much to celebrate in the last couple of decades. On the women's side, it's been very different. Yeah. Um, leading on from Kelly, who was like the, the number one in, in the 90s, and then obviously she did the double, we've had like a plethora of people winning. Winning Hayley Tullett won a bronze, should have been a gold. Um, <laughs> Lisa Dabrithki, Hannah... Um, Hannah England, Hannah England Jenny Meadows. Um, mm. Laura in the last few days. And I tell you what, Laura will be an inspiration to lots of people just because of the way she runs and the success yeah. she's had. So it's not just always the men who have to... It's not men who have to be inspired by men and, and vice versa. There is a... Because of the sport we, we love... Um, because it is the only sport with kind of this equality across um, both genders, um, I'm sure a lot of people would be inspired by those women. 100%. And actually, Jodie, you mentioned earlier Jake Whiteman. So I think it, let's turn to our first athlete. Let's let them explain where they get that inspiration from, what it is that drives them to continue that great tradition. Him finishing fifth in Doha was GB's best 1500 metre finish placing on an international level, I believe since 1983. So he really is someone who I think will know a bit more about the subject than us. Hi, I'm Morgan Lake and you're listening to the Backstreet Boys. We're gonna start with the obvious. I can't not ask you about what it is like having grown up with your dad as your coach and now the soundtrack to some of the biggest races of your career. Yeah, well, I've, I've known nothing else. So whenever I get asked about my dad being my coach, it's literally all I've known since I was 14. Um, it's good. I think it's better now when you're not living at home and uh, he's definitely less of a father because I don't need him to mm -hmm. be a dad at the moment. Whereas when you're younger, it's a bit too much of a conflict between the two. So you find yourself, I don't know, I guess like clashing a bit more of it. Um, mm -hmm. But having him in the stadium announcing is pretty cool because I know that every event, big one I go to now, he'll be there with like the best view of the whole race. Um, and there's been plenty of times in the past where I've been in those big meets and I've run absolutely shocking and he's been <laughs> announcing me and barely even been able to say anything because I've been out the back. But if I run well and he's doing that, which I think uh, it was commies in 2018, he was announcing that when I medalled, which was a pretty nice moment because it's like he, he's involved in the race as well, almost, be it like up in the stands with a mic to his face. Does he ever attempt a bit of sneaky coaching over the sound system? Do you ever hear him going, and Jake Whiteman is breaking up the inside, but really he should be taking the outside lane? Or anything like that. To be honest, I, I blank his voice out a lot because I'm really? fed up of hearing it. But <laughs> no, it's um. I think if if I hear back, because a lot of the time you're a bit in the zone and you don't really hear too much. But mm. 
there's there's occasions where if I've been in a heat that's uh, not the first one, he might give hints as to what we need to run. But I think he'd probably do that anyway. Yeah, but there's of a couple of times where if someone's been closing me hard, he'll like probably give a little bit more warning about that than he may do to others. Which I guess like for not having him in the warm up area, like most coaches, I make up for that by him being able to slip in little messages like that over the mic. <laughs> that's so sneaky. I love that. Yeah. Do you ever fall out then at coaching? It seems to me like you've got a really amiable, great relationship, but there must be times where your temper's fray. Yeah, I think the older you get, you're, you sort of learn a bit more yourself and you've got a bit more opinions of your own. So I'm the worst bit probably about having your dad as your coach is that you could, I'd probably say stuff to him that I would never say to a, a coach mm. that wasn't a relative. So I'm not afraid to stand up to him and say what I think, which... That definitely leads into more heated arguments because the vice versa, he'll probably say a lot worse things to me than he would do to another athlete <laughs> that isn't related to him. So yep. it's, it's, it's good. Like, I can't compare to anything. So maybe I would have arguments with another coach. I don't know, but it's just part of the process, isn't it? And it's, mm. it's good that we've got, I'd say because I'm older now, he respects my opinion a bit more. So we can come to a little bit more of an agreement rather than it just being a dictatorship like it was when I was younger. And I literally just did everything I was told. Um, but it's it's like in sessions when you're tired or like if you've had if you're on a tough training camp and something annoys you that's when I probably mm. would uh, be less likely to bite my tongue and actually say something that I probably shouldn't. I suppose with though that ability to lash out and say things that you wouldn't say to someone else comes actually an ability to be really candid with one another and really frank. So yeah. difficult conversations must be easier with your dad than they would be with someone you didn't know quite so intimately. Yeah, I think so. It, it's it's always like you you don't want to. You don't upset anyone with what you say, but I feel like he'd accept me saying something nasty and not take as much offence to it because he knows mm. I can say that and it's a lot of emotion for both of us because it's like he wants me to run well because I'm his athlete, but then there's a side that I'm guessing he wants me to run well because I'm his son as well. Um, but it's definitely, yeah, it's, it, it's something that does cause problems now and then, but ultimately I feel like I'm at a very... I'm very lucky to have a dad as a coach because the amount of emotional investment he's put into me as well as like time and money when I was younger mm. as well. He's, he's done a lot for me, so I'm very grateful for that. And come Christmas Day, come your birthday or any d- rare days off that you get, is he able to just be your dad? Uh, I, it's not like... Because Seb Coles used to tell the stories about he'd have uh, Peter as his coach and then his dad... He'd call him dad when he's at home. But yes. I'd say it's probably like more blurred lines than you think. And it's a lot of the time I'm around the family. If he if he starts speaking about running to me or something like that, I don't really like it because it's, it's my job and it's like his job. And to be honest, the family are well supportive about it, but they don't want to hear about it. They don't care. So it's like mm-hmm. nice to be able to switch off around the rest of the family. I bet. Um, and a lot of people will say like, oh, is it when you've got your dad as your coach, uh, is he like watching what you're eating? Is he always like strict? But he, he's not like that at all. He's always been pretty chilled out. There, there was a bad time actually when I was uh, when I was younger where I'd had picked up neurovirus around Christmas time because mm-hmm. um, it was going about and I didn't realise I had it, but I'd slept in for when we were meant to be going down to the track for a session and we were meant to leave at like 10 or something and he came into my room and I was still in bed and he went nuts at me. <sighs> and it's like... It turned out I was sick because like, that night I was proper ill, but not many coaches can go in and walk into their <laughs> athlete's room and drag them out of bed to get him 
to getting ready for a session. So yeah, there's no escape. Nah, nah. But he he's chilled out now. Like I'm I'm 25, so I'd hope that I don't need him to keep telling me off or to keep an army. I kind of know what I'm doing now. <laughs> you would like to think so. You yeah. just mentioned Seb Co. Someone else who had a parent as a coach um, yeah. for whom it's working out brilliantly is Ailish McColgan. Yeah, yeah. And I think between the two of you, you're part of this taking things a bit more broadly, past yeah. this incredibly exciting moment in Scottish running. Between yourself, Ailish, Laura, Gemma, Guy, Neil, Jake, I've got all these names written down. Yeah, and I'm just right. wondering what you think is at the core of that success. Do you think you Scots are just grittier than the other home nations? Like, how is this happening? So, like, my take on it, because you get asked it quite a lot, and I think a lot of people have got different opinions on it, but mm. I think that growing up in Scotland, running-wise, it allows you to develop, to develop at a lot more of a like slower rate so it stops us from burning out because it's it's like a smaller country it's a lot less competitive growing up so I was a pretty mm. small kid and like even up until the age of 15 I hadn't grown that much and I was still able to earn a couple of Scottish schools vests like make some district teams even though I wasn't running that well I'd have been completely swallowed up down in England and it's a lot of the yeah, other guys like, like Neil Gurley who is I've been racing him since I was probably about 13, 14, and he was about the same standard as me where we were making like schools finals in Scotland but not winning any medals and stuff and it was just enough motivation to keep you in the sport but I think for the longevity of your career into going into a senior it helped so much it it meant that we kind of got to our best running around junior and then into senior time whereas if we'd been down in England we might have quit or if we were probably a bit overtrained to try and make those teams where we're allowed to develop at our own rate but that's my take on it anyway and I think Going into seniors, when you see like one Scottish athlete going and getting medals, like I think it was the case with Lindsay was probably the first one to do it in 2012. Yes. When she got a European mm. medal. It's like, well, she's grown up in Scotland. Like Lindsay went to my school, so I know I know her well. And it's if someone like her can do that, then it gives you that motivation, and inspiration to think you can go on to do it ourselves. And it's just kind of snowballed from there, I guess. It's a really interesting take, and I love the idea of you not overtraining because you had a more graspable targets ahead of you in that Scottish vest or in those district vests. Oh, it's interesting. I've not heard that one yeah. before. That, that's, just, that's just from my experience. That's why mm. I feel like I've been able to come come through to be an all right senior just because I wasn't overtrained or I wasn't demotivated when I was that age. An all right senior. That is such a modest way of putting your career today, <laughs> <No>. Jake. <laughs> of course, it's not just Scotland who are thriving, though. It's a proper golden era, I feel, especially for the men's side at the moment. Like four of the fastest 11 times of all time over the 1500 meters have been run in the last two years yeah. and I was wondering what you think we can attribute that to is that Cram, Yvette, Co, is it Kelly Holmes, is it Mo Farah, how early do you think we need to look to see where this golden era has come from? I think for male 1500 meter runners you're always getting compared to the Co, Cram, Yvette era mm. and it's hard because they, they were so good like you look at the times they ran you look at the medals both worlds and olympics they all won it's hard to be compared to that so the fact that we can get anywhere close is like pretty amazing to be fair but mm. I, I don't know I guess like probably from Roger Bannister breaking that four minute mile Britain's had a pretty a pretty big presence within middle distance running um, and I remember vividly like watching Kelly Holmes do that double as well which it's not that long ago thinking about it still but the the same as within Scotland when you see uh, when you see like middle distance athletes from Britain running well on the world stage it inspires you to run quicker and just naturally the times progress it's like if mm. if you're having to run that bit quicker to make a team domestically then every year people are going to keep stepping up and running quicker so 
it's getting to a ridiculous rate now where we're getting close to running among the quickest times in the world. So over the next few years, if that keeps moving on, there should be some pretty exciting times for British middle distance athletes. And I hope that that puts in contention to win some global medals. It definitely seems like you're knocking on the door and you're right. It is a matter of when, not if. Uh, yeah. Would you say that in that case, almost the toughest task now facing yourself, Neil, Chris, Charlie, Josh is making the team. Getting that GB vest must be really, really tough. Yeah, it's mad because every year you think it's going to be easier the next year, but it just keeps getting tougher and tougher. <laughs> but it, all it does is sets us up better for the big global champs and the major champs because if you're going to have to make a your British team and it be so hard then you're obviously well equipped to be able to race against the best in the world because domestically we are amongst some of the best in the world anyway so it's mm. it's just a test of your racing skills and I think it's nothing nothing but a good thing going forward because it gives you the best opportunity to practice against guys that are going to be the same standard you're running against in world finals at your own trials in Birmingham or Manchester or wherever it's going to be. And having three of you in that world final in Doha in 2019, I, I cannot remember in my lifetime <laughs> ever having, you know, such a... We're just spoilt for choice with people that we could pick wearing a British vest in a final, which is incredible. And I was wondering if that race in which you set your PB, in which you acquitted yourself so well after proper squeaky bum time and getting yeah. through to the final. Yeah. Is that, in your opinion, the best race of your career? Because I want to remind you of 2017 when you out-sprinted Menangoy yeah. in that incredible Diamond League meet. What, for you, has been your showstopper performance so far? Uh, I think that Diamond League win was definitely, in my mind, my favourite race I've run. Because it's like, Menangoy went on to win Worlds that year. And mm. I actually got into that race. I think the race was on... Thursday and I got a call from my agent on Monday night saying I got a like lane in it because I wasn't in it. No I way. couldn't get in it before that year. So I knew I was running alright and I just thought it's a great opportunity. So I kind of run every race I go into like that, just not really caring if it doesn't really work out, just trying to make the most of it and if, if it happens, it happens. And on that day, luckily for me it did. Um and I think a lot of people probably a lot of people probably still don't know who I am, but they didn't definitely didn't before that race and I think it made a, a few people pay a bit more attention but the worst bit of that season was probably that that was my best run um you always mm. want to make sure that the champs are where you run your best and I went out in the semis of worlds that year so I'd much rather have made a world champs final I think than win that race because at the end of the day it's it's nice winning a diamond league it's it's like still against some of the best in the world but mm. you're in it to try and win medals at champs and if you can't even get through to a final um then there was something wrong that season and I just think I probably wasn't quite ready to race a major champs. I hadn't gone to a global champs before then. And it was a little bit, a little bit of a learning curve for me, mm. um, which then led me into Doha to be a little bit better equipped to make it through those rounds, even though they were very, very tight. And, uh, <laughs> and at the same time, have a good final off the back of it. Well, you said you weren't quite ready for a global champs, but off the back of that, World Indoors final, Commonwealth bronze and a fourth place finish, which I bet people forget about all the time. <laughs> yeah, I don't forget about that. Yeah. <laughs> and then European bronze, <laughs> yeah. fifth in the final at the Worlds. What can we expect, assuming that the event goes ahead, yeah. um, the big one, from you in 2020? Uh, like, like we just said about like making a team is the first thing because it is so hard to yeah. do. Um, but I think... The expectation is just to keep pushing on from that, and the only place, to, the only way you can push on from a fifth place finish is to try and get a medal. And I've got some pretty good opportunities these next couple of years uh, with an Olympic Games coming at what I feel like is a very good time for me. Um, so mm. I'm just going to go make sure that all the prep hopefully goes well in the lead up to trials, 
and if that goes right, good camp because last year in 2019 I had a good camp up in Sam Ritz but my last session uh, I tore my hamstring which was like 10 days or not not quite 10 maybe like 11 12 days before I was racing in Doha so that was like something I did not know that yeah it was, mm. it was like stressful it turned out all right in the end because it actually healed a lot quicker than I thought it was going to be but I definitely don't want anything like that to happen this time because I want to give myself the best God chance no. to get into mm-hmm. a final and try and make uh, make a challenge for those medals. And with that in mind, we're talking about the 1500 a lot here, yeah. but surely you've got podium potential on the eight as well. It seems to me like the 1,000 metres <laughs> is the ideal distance for you, but are we going to see you doubling up a little bit more? Is that something on the table for Tokyo? Uh, like me and my dad have some conflicts and views on this, so he feels that okay. um, to be able to justify doubling, I need to be able to get a global medal in one event first and just focus all my attention on that. So... Uh, that's why like I'm mainly well I am at the moment focusing on 1500 um, but for mm-hmm. me like commies was a tough schedule which is the only like big negative of doing it but I see it as two opportunities to get medals if one doesn't go as well as you think then you've got another chance to come back um, but the way the schedule's run you have to be so well prepared for that it's it's not even physically the fatiguing it's like coming back out doing your warm-up like eating the same food like napping it's just mentally draining um, and I think the order I get, I hope I can get the opportunity to try and to try and double. But the state of 800 meter running in Britain at the moment is probably like as hard as 1500 meter running. So I mm. definitely can't be greedy and have to focus on just making one team. <laughs> yeah, that is fair enough. Yeah. I imagine down the line, though, you do have an eye on some of those records, the Scottish ones over the 800 meters. That's got to be something that you're eyeing up. Yeah, that, that's been one that, I'd love to be able to hold both the 8 and 15 uh, just because it, it shows that you are a middle distance runner rather than just a specialist in one event. Um, I had a good opportunity last year in Monaco but didn't really make the most of it. I probably wasn't isn't in as good eight shape as I should have been but it's a tough record. It's, yeah, 143 is like a quick time mm. for eight and I need to get my flat speed up a little bit because that's my biggest weakness as an eight runner is I'm probably not top end speed as good as well, I'm, I'm definitely not as good as a lot of those guys who can run 44, 45 seconds over 400 metres. So I definitely want to make sure I can run quicker over eight. And that is going to be achieved by getting that speed up, which is what I'm trying to do this winter and going into the summer. All going well winter-wise, having a good one so far, plenty of miles under your belts. <laughs> yeah, it's grim. I, I got uh, a chest infection a few weeks ago, which put me out of the Glasgow Grand Prix. So I've just been a little bit steady coming back from that. But I think as long as it's not coronavirus, then I'm all right because a little chest infection is expected in winter. You get all these little colds and viruses going about. Look forward to seeing you out and about soon. All the best, Jake. Thank Thanks you very, very much. much for stopping by Backstreet HQ. No, very welcome. I'm Andy Butcher and you're listening to the Backstreet Boys. It was great talking to Jake and getting his perspective and also talking about his dad and the influence he's had. But don't forget that his mum was also an Olympian, Susan Tooby, 12th at the 1988 Olympics in the marathon. His aunt, Angela Tooby, second at the World Cross Country Championships behind Ingrid Christensen. So there's some real pedigree going on in that family. Oh, 100%. And it's clear that, that family dynamic works so well for him. We had a bit of a chat away from the microphone afterwards about how hilarious his dad is on Instagram. And for those of you who don't follow <laughs> Jeff on social media, he, he's such a character. And I think you can hear that when you speak to Jake. He's such a confident young man. He really knows 
how it is that he wants to go about his business. And I think there's something, there's something really to be said for that. The white men's clearly know how it is that Jake is going to enjoy success. Also, I just think there's a quiet confidence about him. He's not showy. Yeah. Like he, I remember what, what you talked about when he won, was it in Bislett? Wasn't the draw, Bislett or Oslo? Yes. And he just, Oslo. Like, mm. yeah, he was, I mean, he was a good athlete. We knew him as a good athlete, but the confidence to go out and run something like that. And then um, to medal at Commonwealth and European level to come fifth at the world championships. He, he's one of the best athletes in the UK, but you don't hear about him. You don't show off. They're not setting up races for him. He's just quietly, confidently going about his business and delivering at the championships, where, he's, where we want to see people deliver. It's really interesting you say that because he's a name I've known and I've known for a while, but I, I knew him more because of whose son he was, you know, and he used to, the, uh, the commentators used to mention this a lot. Um, and that's kind of how I got to know, got to know who, who he was rather than the others. But when you actually think about it, he's the most successful of the lot, isn't he? And I don't necessarily think of him, think, think of him in that way. Um, he's the one you can kind of really rely on. Yeah. And you think we've got like in the last few years, we've had, um, Charlie and Chris, who have been fantastic, but who's actually got the more has actually had the more success? It's probably probably Jake, isn't it? How did you two feel hearing him say that he'd quite like to double up, but that his father doesn't support that decision? Would rather that he focus because doubling up and scheduling has been a massive issue in the last few years. Where do you stand on that? I would love to see more people double up if if the um, schedule allows them to, which in recent years it hasn't. In the eighties, if we're going to talk about the eighties, everyone doubled up. Um, and it wasn't a thing, and they had more heats. They often had three or maybe even four rounds mm. to compete in, in as well. But as um, Jake said, when Seb Crow doubled up, he was potential gold medalist in both, as was Steve Cram, as was Peter Elliott. So it's it's a, it's a different scenario, and I don't know, maybe I'm a little bit on Jeff's side. Concentrate on one event, um, and when you're in the level where you're a medalist, um, then you could got a, a fallback. But doing two is a bit tough. It actually made me laugh when I was um, when I was watching, when listening, because I I I, be, I agree with both of them. So my immediate thought was like, yes, of course you should double up if you can. And then when I heard his dad had said the opposite, I thought, oh, I agree with his dad as well. So I don't think there is a right or wrong. But it also very much depends on um, individual championships because it, it, the scheduling is different. You know, sometimes there's um, Sometimes there's like days rest. Sometimes it'll be one will be at the beginning, one will be at the end. Um, sometimes you'll have less rounds. Also depends on your competition. You know, who else have we got for Britain? I don't want some people doubling up if we can replace them, which we probably can at the moment with people with just as much opportunity. So for the moment, you know how I feel about this. I always say the same. When we've got such a strength in depth, I don't think you should be giving double places to somebody unless they're like... Um, far and away above the others you know so when you had Kelly obviously Kelly got to double but in a situation like this when we do have like probably 10 people could qualify and say the 800 I don't really think it's necessary. Hi this is Tony Minicello and you're listening to the Backstraight Boys. <laughs> so talking of strength and depth I went and talked to one of our newest um, 800 meter sensations which is Jamie Webb. Is this the first time you've you've been on? Have we actually spoken before in a mix zone or anything? Uh, we may have spoken in a mix zone, but I I don't I don't recall it, which is probably bad of me. <laughs> to have, but, um, <laughs> but no, I've not I've not been on before. Um, 
and, and maybe maybe we've spoken in the mix zone. Well, um, welcome. It's very, very very pleased to have you here. Um, we were talking in the studio the other week just about the real strength in depth we currently have in the UK, especially the men's middle distances, the women's as well, but especially especially the men's at the moment. And we decided to have a, a UK men's middle distance special. Um, and we couldn't do that without you, who is like arguably the Britain's number one 800 metre runner at the moment. We first heard of you, I think I first heard of you, is when you got disqualified, actually, ironically, at the British Trials indoors last year. But of course, you made good on that when you came through and won a silver medal at the European indoors, wasn't yeah. it? What a change that winter, what a change to make you in such great form. Um, to be honest, I've had, I, had a, I had really consistent progress year on year and um, all the way through. I only had one blip when I changed coach, but my progress all the way through from under 20s to under 23s, I started the sport quite late. Um, so every year, I mean, I went, take, if you take out my little blip year, I went sort of 148, 147, 146, 145, 144. Yeah. Um, so it was always kind of in my traje- trajectory. I guess you just get to a point where people start to notice it. The year before I'd ran 145.7 and I'd trained pretty much on my own all year. Um, so I, th- I joined a group, uh, the Run Yard in Battersea, which really helped. Um, I did a few more sprint hills and focused on bringing my endurance was already fairly good so I just kind of stuck with that but added a bit more speed work in and yeah it paid off I think it more paid off in being right in the mix in races and being able to place myself where I wanted to with the sort of new added speed element I had um but yeah just consistent hard work and progress I think did you find a big difference when you win that silver medal you're suddenly getting interviewed you have interview requests people know who you are how did you sort of cope with that um, I guess it's just part of the territory, really. I I I I take it as a compliment. Um, I guess I don't I don't look at myself as that person, but I think of when I was coming through the ranks and and when I was a youngster, I used to look at people like Asaji and Rimmer, and they were the people I looked up to. So I kind of try to think that that I, I'm I'm in that similar position now, where I, I've got an opportunity that when I speak, I can maybe inspire people, and people do listen and. So it's yeah, I I see it as a nice position to be in because who knows who'll listen to this? Who knows who'll be inspired from what they see? And who know? I don't know who'll be inspired from what I do on the track. Um, hopefully, you're not inspiring too many people because like we have more than enough at the moment. You've got enough competition as it is. Um, talking of competition, we have to talk about the um, the trials last year, which. <laughs> I mean, the trials, it, it was my favourite race of the championships. Um, and in the nicest possible way, I, I couldn't stop laughing because the trials are supposed to bring clarity. And this was probably the messiest race as far as choosing a team that I, I can imagine. Um, you came third, which actually put you in quite, quite a good position. But the two ahead of you, of course, um, didn't actually have the qualifying. Um is that like a really nervous wait? Did you think you were going to make um, the team? Because those behind you, Elliot um, and Kyle, who also had the qualifying, um, were maybe better known to the selectors. Um, where did you think you, you were and how did you sort of handle that? To be honest, I viewed myself in a fairly good position. Obviously, you want to yeah. get it automatically. That that year, the way it had fallen, I figured if I came top three, I didn't really see how they couldn't take me um, yeah. because I already had my, my 144.5 by then. Um, so I was like, well, if, if I, if, if I'm top three here, then having ran 144.5 already this season, and I, I've had a really, I had a really good run of form in races as well. Um, I think I'd 
around my 144, I'd, I'd won two races of good standard and then, then ran my 144. So I was like, well, I'm in a good position. I wanted it automatically. I obviously wanted to win, but I knew I was in a good position to be selected. I think the only point where it could have possibly come into question would have been if Guy and Spencer had gone and ran the qualifying time. Um, and obviously, obviously they tried tried and they came close. Yeah. Um, but yeah, the, the position I was in, I had I'd, I'd, I was the first to cross the line at the trials and I had the fastest time on paper. So going into a selection meeting, I think I'd have been very disappointed. I hadn't been selected. I think we've learned over the years never to 100% trust that the um, selectors are going to make the right decisions. So Yeah, you run a qualifying time and you come top two and then they, they then it's all in your hands, which I failed to do at both championships last year. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um so you made it to the Worlds, thankfully. Um, the the heat. So that was your first outdoor major, wasn't it? You'd done the indoors, the European indoors, but it was your first um, um, sort of world championships. Is that correct? First world championships. Yeah, I did. Um, Amsterdam or outdoor in, championship. I know I did Amsterdam in twenty sixteen. Right, um, of course. Yeah. Yeah, which I, I had a stress fracture at and ran one fifty three in the heat. So I think I think we write that one off as experience. Um, we'll, just, <laughs> we'll, we'll discount that. Okay, so. Thankfully, you did make the turn to Doha. How did you find the whole the whole experience? Uh, I'm really glad I went. It was a real learning curve. Um, the heat was obviously a huge factor that everyone was discussing all the way through, yeah. and it was something I never experienced before. So I, I, if I mean we've got everything about Tokyo at the moment, let's just assume for the sake of this that it's going ahead um, exactly when expected. Um, a July champs in Tokyo is going to have not quite as a drastic a heat. Uh, issue but it's gonna it's gonna be there um it so I, I saw it as a huge learning experience to learn what works and what doesn't um I'm I've no excuses for the way I ran in Doha in, in in the semi-final I was completely exhausted after my heat um but I did I did warm up outside for my semi-final because it was because it was later on in the evening and the heat was so intense out there in the, in the evenings that I don't know if I think next time going through, I, I do, I do things differently. Um, I just learned a lot throughout the whole holding camp and a lot throughout moving to moving from Dubai to Doha and just being in that heat for four weeks. Do you think, um, cause I was just, just rewatching the race. I always think of you as like a really sort of smart tactical runner. Um, and you were doing perfectly well in the, in the semi and then suddenly it's like almost like the, the wheels fell off. So do you put that down to the heat? Do you think it's maybe just an experience? I, I wouldn't say an experience. Um, I think it's really hard to pinpoint it on one thing. I mean, sometimes you can have an off day. All I can say is that I don't know if it was heat related after my heat. I've never been more shot after a race than after 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 heaps day. Like it took me about forty minutes to get through media because I couldn't even climb the stairs, and I don't know if that was to do with the heat or right. just to do with the fact it was such a long season. Um, I mean, I'd had I'd had a really big indoors, um, so I'd raced January, February, March, yeah. had a little bit of off, and then come came back into things. Race May, June, July, August, <laughs> like trained through September and then back out in October. There was so much racing that year that it was really unusual. Probably a situation we might not ever be in again. You're always trying to be in the best shape you possibly can be at the right time. Um, yeah, I was obviously disappointed with it, but at the end of the day, looking back on my year, if you'd have said you're going to run 144 and a half, make the World Champ semi-final, 
and win a European indoor medal, I'd have gone, well, yeah, I'll, I'll take that straight away. So it was a huge step forward for me. Yeah, you, you did You did have a really, really great year. What the World Champs did have is, I suppose, a knock-on effect, certainly to this indoor season, which has been a truncated season for all, all other reasons. Um, as you are, you know, a successful indoor runner, did you have uh, different plans for this indoor season than have actually come to fruition? <sighs> I really wanted to compete, but I'd taken the opportunity to to I'd taken the opportunity to get a really solid winter and focus on the summer we we, we decided that we want to be in the best shape possible this summer um, and it's a unusual circumstance where the world indoors were so late well the champs were so late outdoors last year that we just needed to get a solid block in or that we wouldn't have the right time for that real base work I, I picked up a little injury off the back of in, in my first week back of winter as well so that delayed me by a month or so again so I was like I just got to focus on focus on that base now and, and get ready for summer which I'm really happy with where I'm at at the moment um I'm really excited to compete and hopefully we get the opportunity to 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 put that onto the track and the season get get, get seasons not not hindered would you have done the um world indoors if that had been possible I was I didn't have a plan to compete over 800 at the world indoors no um just just because I wanted to focus on the summer and go all the way through. Okay. Um, I did. I, I <laughs> went to South Africa in January, um, had a really good endurance block out there and got offered a lane at Glasgow over 1500. And I was like, you know what? Maybe I can just do it off an endurance base. And that, that didn't really go very well. Right. Um, <laughs> and to, to be fair, to be fair to Matt, um, Matt was like, you, you, you're not, you shouldn't be running a 1500. I was like, oh, yeah, I might just go fine. And it wasn't, wasn't fine um but, but but no I'm in a really good endurance place now so when when we're a few we've got a few weeks left before we start to think about think about 800s and summer summer properly um so yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to starting to turn my legs over again so we, we had a late um world championships and we've got a relatively early olympics this year so that brings us pretty quickly up to the uk trials again um now talking about our strength in depth which is what this um particular um podcast is about today um it feels like getting into the british team is potentially going to be harder than getting through the rounds of the the Olympics itself. I think we had eight people um, with the A standard last year and the one, two at trials didn't actually have the standard. So we have possibly sort of like eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve people who who potentially could be in the mix for the the World Championships. We're talking Guy, um, Andrew Asage is looking great this year, Elliot Giles, Carl Langford, Jake Whiteman, Josh Kerr, Michael Rimmer, who you were just just speaking about, we can't dis- dismiss him. Uh, Spencer Thomas won the trials, and that's not even including our amazing juniors. You know, the we won um, gold, silver, and bronze at the European Juniors with our number one missing. So, I don't remember a time with this much strength in depth. Um, what are you going to do to make sure that you you can actually get through and make it to Tokyo? We naturally, as as people, spend a lot of time thinking about what others others do. And I think as I've become a more mature athlete, um, I've started to think just more about me. Sure. And the way I see it is last year, there's great strength and depth. But last year, at one point, I was ranked 16th in the world. And I genuinely feel as though in July last year, I was in the best shape I was in. And, right. And, and there were only a few people. I, I viewed it then that if I'd have grown in confidence after London and being able to and we'd have gone straight into a major champs. I'd, I, I genuinely viewed it. Maybe, maybe that was a bit, may I have high expectations of myself, but I viewed it as though 
I was up there with with the best in the world and that I could compete against them and and be in the mix and beating them. So the way I see it is if I want to be at that level, which is where I want to be making World Champs finals and contesting, then I've got to be in the top three. (laughs) I've got to be in the top three Brits or I don't deserve to be there. Um, So all I can do is focus on being in the best shape I possibly can. Um, And if that, that that means being now moving the sights to being a 143 runner, and if I'm running 143, then then I'm going to be hard to beat. So I've just got to think about myself and being in the best shape I possibly can be. Um, or I'll spend half my life just worrying about what's ever, what everyone else is doing. I do think it's interesting. You say if you're a 143 runner, then it puts you in a better position. But when it comes down to the trials, it often comes down to to tactics um as we saw in the men's 1500 last year when, when charlie didn't get charlie was way faster than the rest of the field and the did, didn't make the didn't make the team because he didn't make the top three um i've noticed something really interesting about british middle distance running um especially on the men's side we had obviously great great runners back in the 80s um with your kojo of extra crams peter elliott's etc we then had a, a bit of a dry period we always had people you know who could make finals um John Mayer, Candy Badley, Michael East, etc. But what over the period, we had a lot of people who just had terrible, terrible tactics. You know, it wasn't that they couldn't, wasn't that they weren't fast. It wasn't that they couldn't um, run a fast time, but put them in a, in a major championship. And they seem to just kind of go to the back and stay there. Um, something that doesn't happen anymore. I've been so excited over the last two, three years about the tactics of all of you lot. You know, how you seem to actually go to to win is that something you specifically think about your 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 tactics because it doesn't seem that people in past years used to do so so much the only race i went went to focus on time was um london diamond league yeah Uh, every other every other race i've gone in it to win i've gone in it to i've tried i tried out a few different tactics at different points um but it was always to try and collect as many ones to your name as possible and i think i think that's really important if you win every if i if you win every race then you end up you end up running quick anyway yeah um yeah the only the only the only race I didn't do that was London where I was like well I know I need the standard now and if I just get on the rail and ride the rail and can come through strong then I'll run quick um because it was really important for me to just box off that stand in that race and I kind of had a lot of bad luck and I wish I wish I'd I wish I'd had had the standard before that race and I could have ran with a bit more of a free sure. spirit and just stuck myself stuck myself in in to try and to try and win them races because you never know what can happen but I'm in that position now um I feel I know what I'm capable of um and that 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 London race really gave me that confidence that yeah these these times like 143 um and these 144s can be run on a regular basis and I am capable of that so um, yeah, I, I now want to expose myself to the highest competition possible and racing racing the best in the world to win. Well, that's that's really good to hear. You, you are one of those athletes who, when I watch, I have confidence in you. You know, that's not always the case. I kind of always assume that you're going to put yourself in the right position and d- do the best you can. Good. I'm not sure. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not sure. I am. I think I might still make my dad nervous. Um. <laughs> <laughs> Just one last question. Um, you're a chemistry teacher, or you were a full-time chemistry teacher. Is that still the case? Were you like um, on a hiatus or something? I'm on a bit of a hiatus this year. Um, I wanted to. I've got fantastic support through Adidas now, um, and I do intend. I do. I don't intend to be a, a full full-time athlete um, for the rest of my running career because I do think I need something to stimulate me. But my last few years have been so busy um, that this year I just saw it as an opportunity to really 
focus on focus on the Olympics and just give it my all um, because I'll be 26 in in Tokyo uh, which I, I see as a, and I'll be 30 come Paris so um, obviously I still plan to be around um, but it's a real good time for me this year if I can build on what I've done um, previously so yeah I, I decided that it was a bit of a hiatus year and I could I called it my gap year and and I could just I, I could I could focus on focus on yeah being the best athlete I possibly can be as Jamie pointed out there he's actually been on the scene for a while but I certainly hadn't noticed him I think because he is quite in the same way that Jake Whiteman is very quietly confident Jamie Webb is also very assured in his abilities and when you look back through his power of 10 you see that marginal improvement and actually that's the sort of success story that we want to see because that sustainable improvement is what's ultimately going to lead to success you get those wonders who then go on to disappear and I think actually we see quite a lot of them go off to the States, which is why it was so interesting speaking to Josh Kerr, who's someone who at just 17 headed across to New Mexico. And I mean, the results, they speak for themselves. I wanted to start with you, Josh, with you as a sprightly 17 year old traveling across the pond to enter the NCAA system, because we talk a lot on Backstraight Boys about how as a system, it's very hit or miss. Some people thrive over there. And I think other people suddenly go from being good sized fishes in tiny ponds to little minnows in oceans and people burn out or they're swallowed up by the system or it just doesn't work for them. But it seems to me like the move to the States was the making of you. Yeah, it, it definitely was. And I think there is a massive, yeah, there's a massive split between the people who are successful and, and there's a lot of people that aren't successful. But that's the, that's the same with, you know, UK universities, the same with people who don't go to university. It's like, you know, you just need to find the fit that works for you and you know I always wanted to go to the US and and that was just always going to be my plan like I trained um with my coach Dave Campbell and um uh, a kind of assistant coach of of Terry O'Hare and and obviously that's Chris O'Hare's dad and and I was training with Chris O'Hare's you know um brother and sister and you know sometimes his older brother would be there sometimes he would be there and he'd just be talking to us about you know what his life was like over at Tulsa and I was like you know, for the from the age of what, fourteen, I was like, this it has to be what I want. Like, this is it. This is what I want to do. Like, this is gonna be it. And um, I just I kept fantasizing about it, and I was like, this this sounds like the life for me. I was I was training with guys um, that you know would consistently be there, and and maybe sometimes it was bad weather. People had work, and I trained with the people who were a lot older than me, so they had jobs in college and university or whatever. So it's like sometimes it would just be two or three of us at the weekend or even just by myself. And I was like, you know, I want to be with a team that's there all the time. And, and you know, I, I really thrive off that team atmosphere. And, and I was like, all right, well, let's just start emailing colleges at 16 years old because, you know, I was going to finish school at 17. And I was like, okay, I'll, you know, everyone else is doing their UCAS stuff and getting ready to go to university here. And that's something I never really wanted to do. And I'm not, I wouldn't say I'm the most... Uh, educated man uh yeah i would I, I, i'm sw i've switched on i'm switched mm -hmm. on but uh i'm not i wouldn't say i'm book smart is 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 probably the right way to put it in and uh so i was just like okay let's let's just go all in on this and i did my sat which is the exam you have to do to get um you know into the university there and and uh, I was like, I just, I did that at the same time I was doing my hires for school. And I was like, okay, let's just go for it. And, and uh, I got an okay score and I just started emailing universities. And, you know, the, like you said, you know, there's, there's people that do really 
pretty badly over here and there's people that do really well you know if you look at the 1500 right now you've got me chris uh, neil and james west that have all come to u.s universities and we're four out of the top probably seven mm. guys in the 1500 right now you know it's it is hit or miss but you just need to find the right college for you and there's so many different programs and so many different coaching styles so many different teams it's like you've got you've got so many options that you just if you rush it it's not going to be the right one you know you didn't just want to go to an American college though because you ended up at New Mexico and the Lobos are one of the best that's one of the best programs in the country Joe Franklin is a famous famous coach um, yeah. does it feel a bit speculative when you were applying or did you really believe you could get picked up by a program as prestigious as that uh, I I was unsure I if I'm being honest I emailed everyone um, <laughs> I don't think there was a US university that I didn't email in, in the division one and because mm. um, I didn't really know about division two or anything like that at that point and and um, which I have to say, because one of the my fellow podcasting sit and kick podcaster is a division two guy. And I brought that up in our podcast and he was like, oh, you you messaged my coach. And I was like, actually, I didn't message any D2, but that's a sore subject for him. Um, <laughs> but no, I just I, I, I think I just put together a running CV and I put together a, a, an email saying, you know, dear, whatever NCAA coach. And I, I went for it and just said, you know, this is what I you know, these are the times I've ran, you know, these are the races that I've done well in, these are the records I have from age group stuff. And, and this is kind of what I stand for and, and how I approach training every day. And, and, uh, and I think I emailed about 50 or 60 coaches and most of them came back saying, Hey, like, you're going to need to give us another year. Cause you know, people come out of, um, high school, what was it at 18 there? Yes. And I was 16 at the time. And I'll be racing people up to the age of 23. And, it's like that's a that's a big gap between the age of sixteen and twenty three in this sport. So mm. I'd ran three fifty two for the fifteen hundred, and like one fifty three for the eight hundred, and 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 you know that's not really D one. Like you're not really good enough to to be racing mm. D one at that point, and and you know I was like, well, I'm just gonna shoot my shot, keep shooting my shot, and and Joe, you know maybe it was a couple of weeks later was just like, hey, we like you, we like that you win races, and. And uh, we want to take you on. And I was like, I don't need a visit. I'm coming. I'd never really been to the US before. I, I didn't even take a visit. I was like, I'm, I'm on my wow. way. Oh my gosh, yeah. you flew to the other side of the world. Yeah. And not, and again, to a prestigious program, but also quite a tough program because you're altitude constantly there. You're yeah. training with some properly world-class athletes. We've seen with like Courtney in the last few years, people stroll out of a Lobos kit and into a US national team one. Yeah. Um, and just for anyone listening who isn't aware, I mean, you had a stellar NCAA career you've got multiple titles you won the Brian Clay Invitational uh, medalist on other numerous occasions and you had a good go over kind of all sorts of distances cross country on the track do you look back on it and think yeah you know what I nailed that uh it depends like so I was only at UNM for three years and you know if, if you'd said after my first year you'd be like okay Josh you got two years to win three NCAA titles uh and, and run the NCAA record in the 1500 I would have called you mad um <laughs> and and it's, it's just because if you're going to the U.S. you have to be incredibly patient especially if you're going as a as an undergraduate because mm. it is it, that transition to going from a guy who's with with your parents you're going to school from you know nine till three thirty every day and you're going to train and your parents are making you have food and this and that and and driving you everywhere to go into like having to do every single thing by yourself mm. it, 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 it's difficult it really is a lot of schools make you live on campus and have like um like a meal plan and meal plans are never that great you've got pizza and 
you know, pizza and freaking donuts uh, like every minute of every day if you wanted it and stuff. Mm. So it's the US, you know, like <laughs> you're gonna, <laughs> if you're coming over at that age and, and you get given these options, you're going to take it. So it takes time to kind of realize and, and kind of stand on your own two feet and, and uh, trust your training and your program. So, you know, I, yeah, I, it took me probably about a year and a half for it to click. And, you know, my first cross country season, I, I was dro- I dropped out of a 10K because I was in like last place. I I mean, I probably put on like 20 or 30 pounds. It was pretty crazy. Like if you see pictures of me in my freshman year, it's, it's, it, I don't know if you'd recognize me to be honest, um, because it, it, it was a different world. You know what I mean? Like I couldn't grow a beard and that was a tough time. And it, you know, it's just, it was rough, it was rough, but, uh, but I'm here now. So that is so funny because the last bullet point on my notes I've got in front of me just says the beard. Yeah. So we will have to turn to talk about that at some point. <laughs> fascinating to hear that it forced you to grow up because I actually often think that where the programs are so full-on out in the states it must be a little bit infantilizing when you're told what you're doing every minute of every day Mm -hmm. but I suppose actually where you are such a long way away from your parents who've been those guiding forces in your life to date yeah it must be there must be a lot of growing up to do but you clearly love the system love the culture because you have Mm -hmm. stayed across the pond you're there now training with the Brooks Beasts Um, Two questions on that. Firstly, why have you stayed in the States? Is it maybe a little bit of kind of enjoying the lack of exposure and pressure that you get being in another country? And secondly, um, what is life like now as a professional senior athlete? Uh, I would say the reason I'm here is opportunity. Um, mm-hmm. There is vast amount of opportunity here. I grew a brand in the US and, and the US coaches and, and brands know me as not a US athlete, but they, they can pay me like a US athlete. And that's very different to be getting paid as a UK athlete when you make your brand over in the US. That's interesting. Um, yeah. So there, I mean, there is a big difference there. And, and um, Brooks treat me very well. And, and uh, I get I, I got an opportunity to speak to the marketing team. And, and they sat down with my parents and did all these presentations was like, this is why we want Josh, this is what we're going to do with him. This is you know, this is the, this is the deal pretty much. And, and this is why we want them. And, and my parents sat down and were like, you know what, Josh, like this seems like a very good opportunity for you. And, and why would you turn away uh, a deal with, you know, I'm, I'm training with, you know, a world indoor silver medalist. I'm training with the likes of Garrett Heath. You know, we have a bunch of 1500 guys that are, you know, some of the best in the U.S. And uh, mm. some of the best 800 meter guys in the U.S. And, you know, why would, why would I turn down that opportunity to, live that lifestyle it's pretty much a continuation of my lifestyle now and uh and i just get to train with um you know faster guys and and, and a fantastic coach uh, and we get you know nutrition we get you know pt every day from my same pt i actually had at unm because brooks signed her as well so it, oh, wonderful yeah mm. it, i mean like it, it was a no-brainer and and you know i people people ask like oh why like are you doing, are you staying over in the US because of like, there's less pressure? I don't, I, I, I don't care. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the people in, in the UK, um, tr- like to train in the UK. And I, I also love to train in the UK, but I have a lot of opportunity to, to one train with the best team in the world and, and to make more money. And, and, and both those things are making me a lot faster. So, um, yeah, it's, it, it, it's a, it's a no brainer for me. When you put it like that, it, yeah, it is a no brainer. 100%. <laughs> we talked briefly before we hit record about, the American 
love of forming teams even mm-hmm. in individual sports and I get such enormous FOMO every time I look and see what the Bowerman Track Club are up to yeah. or any of the groups out in the States and th- like you said they've got such followings yeah. people absolutely love them they love feeling as though they're living vicariously through them and they're a part of those cultures and I think also there are real identities to track teams in the States mm-hmm. there's a real sense of the type of person who runs for that team what would you say is the defining feature of the Brooks Beasts and do you think you could be anything like as successful as you are at the moment and you are hoping to be were you training by yourself in a more British style setup yeah it's like there's a lot of what ifs around you know like what if you didn't do this what if you didn't do that and you look back and Mm. you're like you know if I didn't win this race would I be in this position if I didn't run this time whatever but you know the Brooks Beast is like one of the I would say a very very friendly brand you know it's it's so I'm racing or training up with guys that one the best for me. There's there's no one that I'm there competing against until I'm I'm competing in an Olympic final or a world championship final. So and and that goes for, for all the guys and we have such a, a an atmosphere that works so well because the the marketing team and, and Danny work so hard on, on making sure that every person that comes into the team works very well with the team. So there's no drama, there's no like, oh, like we're not going to overtrain because we want to beat each other. You know what I mean? Like it's a really, Mm. it's a nice atmosphere to be around. And, you know, that's why we are successful because, you know, we want everyone around us to be successful because it just pushes each other on. Like I ran the fastest 1500 time this year and I can guarantee that, you know, Henry wants to beat that. Isaac wants to beat that. Dave wants to beat that. You know, Henry ran a 351 indoor last year and I was like, I ran 353. I need to be better. Like watch what he's doing and we're all learning from each other. So, you know, I would say, you know, with bigger teams like Byron and like, you know, all uh, bigger teams, it's like, it's very difficult not to be competitive because you're all running for the same spots. And I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying that like that those are the kind of things that can build in teams and, and can kind of push them over the edge. But, you know, it looks like most teams are doing it all right right now. But, you know, I've been in situations in the UK, like in a, oh, I remember it was like the London mini marathon camp or something like that. And it, like, <laughs> we were running like, we did like one session on the Sunday before we all left and like everyone was just absolute balls to the wall. And I was just like you know, I'm going to get injured doing this. <laughs> and, mm. and, and, you know, and, and being out in the U.S. is, is great because there's a lot of um, great races and I can even, you know, we set up some time trials with my teammates all the time and, you know, that's a, a world-class, world-class race in itself. So, um, yeah, there's great races and stuff over here and, you know, I get to travel back to the U.K. and, uh, and be able to be with my parents, my family and, and get to do some races over there. And I was able to run in front of a home crowd this year already and, so I do, I do get the, uh, the, the travel miles in as well. So that's always fun. You mentioned world finals there. And I think a good race to discuss was your world sixth placing in Doha. Ridiculous final in terms of the calibre of it. And also just so exciting having three Brits in it. Do you look back at that as the best performance so far of your career? It's hard not to. Um, you know, a PB in a world final is, is, you know, the pinnacle of what I've done so far, probably. Um, but you know it's it was it was great it was great but you can see in the face of Jake you can see in the face of me and also Neil where it's like it was great and it was a fantastic step forward in British middle distance running but it's not quite where we want to be um, we don't want to be for uh, you know fifth sixth and tenth we want to be one two three and um, you know that like I'm happy I got to the world final this, uh, last year and and um, it's a great it's a great stepping stone into the future but. 
you know, I'm not running to be sixth place. I'm running to be, you know, in that top three. I'm running to be in that top, top bit of the podium. So, you know, it's, yeah, it just, I think it just confirmed to me and probably the rest of the guys in the 1500 that, you know, it's possible, you know, it, it you know, you, you kind of kid yourself for a long time that it's possible and, and that you can get there. But like when you're in that world final and you're jogging, uh, warming up again and everyone's in there and you're like, okay, this is it. Like, this is the moment that I've been, you know, kind of kidding myself for a long time and it's now a reality. So now that we've gone through that reality, it's time to know that, you know, every single race we go into, like that's the kind of level of athlete we are now and, and uh, that, mm. that we can now perform at that level at all times. So yeah, I would say it was probably the, one of the better races of my career. It's, it's difficult to say my best race of my career because I know I made mistakes, but yeah, I would, something like that, yeah. <laughs> I guess the perfect race doesn't exist. And as athletes, you're hypercritical. So you probably would never look back and say, <laughs> yeah, that was spot on. Yeah. You talk about the warm-up area and looking around and seeing world-class athletes. I guess it's about having the belief that the other athletes are looking around, clocking you, clocking Jake, clocking Neil, clocking Charlie, and also thinking, wow, they're in the same field as me. These guys are serious contenders. And it does feel inevitable that we're very soon going to start seeing Brits on these middle distance podiums. Is that a Kramovet Co thing? Is that a Kelly Holmes? Is it Mo Farah? Is it something that British Athletics is doing? Why have we suddenly got such a purple patch? Yeah, that's that's a question a lot of people have been asking. and <laughs> Like, I'm focusing on myself, so it's difficult. But... It's what I will say is is um, from a Scottish athletics standpoint, they mm. they they work hard to make sure that we're doing all right. And and you know all the way through my college career, I had you know um, Mark Pollard, who's uh, one of the Scottish athletics coaches and endurance coaches, um, making sure that everything was going all right. And and I can guarantee that he was doing the same for Chris and Neil and Jake. Um, and and that is really just like. You know, getting that extra set of eyes on your training is, is really important. And, you know, Mark Pollard actually coached me for my last part of my high school career and, and, and really pushed me on and, and, and made me into a, a proper athlete before I actually arrived here. So that was great. And, you know, it's difficult. You know, you've got a, a world final, even this year, let's say like the Olympic final this year. We have seven guys in the UK that can be in the Olympic final. It doesn't matter which which three out of those seven guys you take, they can all be in the Olympic final this year. If if goes if all goes well, injury free, whatever. Mm. And that is that is incredibly intense. You know what I mean? Like we <laughs> we're gonna be standing on that start line in uh in June in, in Manchester, knowing that, you know, we could have a really good race but still not be top three. And that is That's that is mad, very, very mm. crazy. It's it, it is it is crazy and and I love that. I, I love that because that brings the best out of me every day. I'm like, all right, well, if you know, if I'm not if I'm not doing my work, then people are going to be in front of me. So you know, I get up and and do what I have to do every day. And you know, when you have you know great British records with you know Farah's record, and then you know Crammy was what twenty nine, and you know you've got all the events and and this and that, and you know th- that's where Brit- British athletics used to be, and that's where we we're trying to get it back into that into that situation. You know, the UK were the only. Um, nation in the world championships in the 1500 to have all three of their athletes get through to the final and and that's that's showing that you know our strength and depth is better than the u.s our strength and depth is you know better than than kenya at this point um probably not but you know (laughs) something along those lines but you know we're we're getting there we're we're starting to show that we're a real force to be reckoned with so it's it's fantastic to be a part of that and you're in the perfect sector of the venn diagram because you're both scottish and uh male middle distance runner in the UK at the moment <laughs> exactly. because both of those parties are absolutely slaying us on the global stage and actually just mm-hmm. remembered you talked about British trials being incredibly competitive didn't Charlie stand on the start line for that with a 330 from the Diamond League 
and then finished fourth. Correct. 3.30 was probably a world-leading time or in the quickest five of the year or something at that point. Yeah, it was, yeah I think he was ranked I think he was ranked number four um, in the world and he didn't yeah. make our team, yeah. I mean, that was a bizarre race, but even so. Uh, the thing is about it is like, you know, at this point in, in, in the situation we have at British Athletics is, you know, we should respect the trials. And, and you know, all mm. of us, you know, all of us, you know, it shows that, you know, Jake went from being a 334 guy to be a 331 guy in the, in the world final. Uh, and it, or he, he was a 333 guy probably before, but like that year. And it's like, all of us can run around that 330 mark. And, you know, it, the Olympic finals is about how good you are on that day, you know, within four years. And, you know, it, when it comes down to the British trials, at this point, you know, with such a, the depth that we have and the strength we have, whoever we're going to send, they're going to be good at the Olympics this year. And, you know, I, I think you just got to be ready for that one day. And, and, you know, if it doesn't go my way, I've just got to respect that, you know, I'm working my ass off and I need to make sure that I'm doing everything I need, I need to do. And if it, it comes short this year, I want to know that I've put everything into it. And, you know, I've got to just tip my hat at the other boys that make it. But in my head, it doesn't go that way. It goes my way. So, but I just think, you know, respect the trials. And, you know, when you have that kind of caliber of athletes in the, in the race, it's just, it's, it is what it is. And, you know, there's going to be heartbreaks. And I, I can guarantee you, it's going to be difficult to be, to be naming the top three this year in the 1500. So it's going to be, it's going to be a fun time. I might write respect the trials out as many times as the Twitter character allowance will let me <laughs> and just post that kind of every day leading up to the trials because it's been <laughs> such a source of frustration for me over the last few years when athletes have no-showed or misjudged it or mm -hmm. just kind of seen it as a rite of passage. You're right, I think competitive trials can only mean big things on the global stage. Speaking of which, my final very serious question for you this evening is if coronavirus doesn't wipe out the entire athletics calendar... <laughs> Um, and a week ago, I spoke to Jake Whiteman for this episode and things looked very different indeed. And now suddenly we are really staring down the barrel of a very different <laughs> athletic season. But let's say it all goes ahead. Yeah. What would you like to be able to look back on your 2020 um, and see that you've achieved? Consistency. Uh, I want to I take a step up from the year before. And if I keep doing that, I'm going to be in a great position, uh, you know, each year and you know, it's it's all good and well being you know a world finalist one year, but if you're not even making the Olympic team, you're a nobody the next year. So, you know, consistency is is a massive thing for my career, and and uh, I would like to look back and and be better than six in the world. Very nice. I like that consistency. Yeah, don't don't pin it down to numbers or anything. Keep it kind of generic. Oh yeah, I want to run three twenty four. Wouldn't that be nice? Um, important question: If you shave off your beard, do you go faster, or mm -hmm. is it a superstition that it's got to stay? Well, you see, I grew the beard and then I got bare. Ooh, so okay. The the power is in the beard. I I, I assume. Mm. So I, I'm very scared to shave it. I'll trim it, but it it'll, it'll it looks pretty fire at night. So I'll, I'll get it. I'll get it looking pretty good for the for the trials. Don't worry. Yourself. Danny's do, not raising concerns over drag issues or weight, anything, <laughs> nothing like that. You're fine to keep it. Nah, nah, as long as my nutrition's good, it'll be fine. <laughs> I love that. But I've got my, one of my best mates, Julian, doing all my hairdressing now, so it's, uh, I, I've got to respect that and, you know, let him do what he needs to do. You have got a proper setup out there, including, of course, your podcast. Mm -hmm. The stage is yours, Josh. Can you please explain to me? what this thing is about <laughs> yeah so we have a podcast myself and my teammate david ribich uh who is also on the brooksby's team and we have a podcast called the sit and kick podcast and we launched it probably 
a month ago, six weeks ago, something like that. And uh, we got a really nice response and, and we got some great listeners. So, you know, we claimed that our first four episodes were season one uh, that we discussed mm-hmm. yesterday due to the fact <laughs> that I've been away from him for five weeks, six weeks and may have forgot to take my mic with me. And we will be starting season two pretty soon. And it's available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and all those lovely things. So, no, we're just having fun with it. We enjoy doing it. And uh, we're going to we're gonna just, yeah, just um, interview some some runners and, and some other sporting um, athletes and, and just have a bit of fun with it and talk about the silly stuff. Well, now you know how not to conduct an interview, having been on the receiving end of my rambling. So you can take <laughs> that and go forth. Everyone listening, check out the pod. It does sound like really good fun. And I wish you all the best with it and indeed with everything on the track. Josh, thank you so much for stopping by Backstraight HQ. It's been a pleasure to have you on. No problem. Thank you so much for having me. Josh is a special case because we have talked a lot about going to America and how athletes don't always uh, thrive there. He was one of those athletes who, when he was in America, we, you, we kept hearing about him. Yes. He was just like this, this name that was over in America. You just hear, you mm. just see a result. You're like, I don't know who this is. Um, and Nathan Neil Mitchell Blake's another one who, I mean, he, he didn't come through the British system and you just hear his name and know he was going to compete for us. And we didn't know who he was. And Josh Kerr has come back and he won the World Juniors, wasn't it? Didn't he win it like by, a, like, or European Juniors by like one hundredth yes. of a second? Yeah. And then he comes and he runs at the, I think he got to the, he qualified and he's run fast times and he's really established himself here. I didn't realise he still lived in America. That's really interesting. His staying out in the States, you're right, is actually almost more interesting than him going out there uh, for the collegiate system in the first place. And he says that it's not about staying away from media attention. He says it's all about focusing on his own thing and having a great setup out there. But do you think that over the years we have seen the sensationalism that's whipped up around promising youngsters actually being a bit of a downfall for British middle distance runners because the media are so desperate to find the next Cramco event? I mean, absolutely. Absolutely. The pressure that's been put on people the minute they've run one good race, can, it can't be helpful. What I thought was interesting about Josh as well is the reason he stayed over, one of the reasons he stayed over, is the good sponsorship deal he's got. And that's off the back of being so successful in the NCAAs. That would not work in the UK because sponsors in the UK, even if it's a subsidiary of the same company, don't care what you've done at the NCAAs. So to ride that NCAA success into a, a platform and a profile in America where it means something is is really important. And it's a really smart mm. move to stay out there and and be be someone who's he's a name. He's a name within those circles because of his success at, at um, collegiate level. Absolutely. He actually used the word brand at one point during that interview, which really made me sit up and pay attention because we don't think of athletes as products like that, but they have got that nailed in the States. And especially people at the NCAA level, you can be win lots of stuff at NCAA, never even make an international team. And you're still a big name within that sport. You still have sponsorship. You still have fans. You still Mm. like go to meetings and people know who you are and all the rest of it because of your success at a collegiate level, which would never happen in the UK. I mean, I'm, I think that's good, good. <laughs> but um, but in America, it's a totally different sporting mm. system. But you know what it also does do is it frees athletes from the shackles of lottery funding mm-hmm. or at funding given out by NGBs because we see people like Alex Bell, who is still making international finals and making a proper name for herself despite not having any funding or any support repeatedly. But that's really the exception to the rule. Most athletes can't get by without funding. Um, and so if you're able to be someone like Josh Kerr, it doesn't matter what UK uh, funding selectors think of you because you can go out there and you can train, you can be a full-time athlete. Yeah. This is Alison Felix and you're listening to the Backstreet Boys. Something that all three of those athletes touched upon 
is something that the Sprint Queens also are very keen to discuss, which is that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, the British success that we're enjoying. Domestic competition allows us to be competitive at an international level because you have to be running practically qualifying times if you want to exit our trials or you've got to be a tactical genius. That is really exciting. That was exactly what I said to Jamie, <laughs> which was that um, you've, in, in the 800 metres, we had eight people qualified last year and the top two at the trials didn't get the qualifying. That, that, that's 10 people like that are fighting out for what is maximum three spots. So you've got to up your game. It's harder to get into the team than it is to get through the first couple of rounds mm. of the Olympics possibly even the semi-final Olympics, depending on whether the tactics come into or not. The thing is, we say that last year, the qualifying was a lot easier than this year. No, um, sure. Yeah, this changed, year, yeah. 145.20 and then 145.30 for the B um, standard. And I think we're going to have to chat about this whole B standard thing yeah. um, on our next podcast, Claire, because um, that's thrown a little cat amongst the pigeons that I wasn't aware of. And then in the 1500, 335. Um, so they are considerably... Um, higher mm. than than it was last year because yes. last year for example the, the men's 1500 was um 36 and the 800 was 45 8 so it would re- significantly um significantly um reduce the amount of people who were qualified but having mm. said that um maybe people improve this year and so we've still got the people in and around those times who are going to be racing for the spots i really hope that mm. everyone has thought about what happened at the trials last year and realized oh, that you're going to have to be very tactically aware to get through these trials you can't just turn off, off off the back of a fast time because there's going to be people who are right there and in a slow race at a trials which trials usually is um they can beat you in a sprint finish so people are going to have to think about their tactics and running races to their advantage mm-hmm. But it also, as you say, um, in, a, in a slow tactical race at the trials, um, anything can happen, which is why it's incumbent on the faster people to try and make sure it's not a slow tactical race. You know, it's like yeah. you, everyone, everyone, as we so always say, everyone thinks they've got a kick, don't they? Um, but if everyone thinks they've got a kick, then... Mm. Interestingly, though, the Olympics, I just had a peek at the 1500 metre times that have won gold over the last five Olympics. Oh, yeah. Ridiculous race in 2016. Won in 3.50. 3.50. 3.50. <laughs> Do you remember how insane that race was when Kiprop got just eaten up down the back straight? Yeah, so but weird. the others have all been won with sub 3.35 clockings which is the qualifying time for this year. So historically, Olympics are run fast. So why on earth would you not turn up to the trials with a good time underneath your belt, go gun to take, do an Ailish McColgan, you know, mm. obliterate the rest of the field, show what you're made of. And then selectors, you just make their job so easy. You've got the time and you've got the nous and they should just put you on the plane. Look at the um, 1500 metres last year. Um, Charlie Grice had won 3.30 mm. and the trials was run in 3.47. And he didn't get in. Well, but everyone thinks it's a risk to go from the front. But if you've not got that quick last 150 metres, it's a risk not to go from the yeah. front. So although yeah, it feels, you probably feel um, more you've put yourself out there by going out and make, like, make yourself the target, um, for some people, that is, the, that is the smart tactic. Claire, just talking about Matt Centrovitz, um for a minute, I just feel like the British men at the moment can aim to be what the American men have been over the years because I always feel like 100%. I always feel like there's a sneaky bronze for an American man and I mean always yeah historically like going back to 87 Jim Spivey got got a bronze um Mark Everett got a bronze um Rich Kenner I, th- I think it was I don't think he got a bronze or a silver in 97 um Leonard Manzano got a got a silver in 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 London um and then um 
Matt Sentovic, I know he won the Olympics, but he'd got silver and bronze in the previous two world championships. Also, in, in the 800 last time an American got the bronze, didn't he? I can't remember his name. Yes, he, um, Clayton Murphy. Yes, yeah. And Nick Simmons as well. Got, so Nick Simmons is a little yeah. bit of a different case because he was quite well known. But um, I feel like there's, if you're smart with your running, and we said this about American runners before, and on the women's, uh, the, sorry, the women are exactly the same. Because you look at Jenny Simpson. Like she's fast, but she's not a world beater on the on the um, global uh, on the on the Diamond League. But you know she's always going to get a medal. Ag Wilson mm. always gets a medal. Brenda Martin has got a medal. Raven Raven Rogers got a medal. You're so right. Mm. And they they're there and thereabouts during the year. But they're smart and they run races to their own advantage. And they run sometimes they're smart mm-hmm. enough to run for a bronze. Yeah, that's absolutely which is true. Sometimes when when people are way ahead, the smart thing to do. So I just feel like there's a there's a kind of a core of British runners. Here now who we can always see as people who can get to finals and maybe nick a bronze maybe gold's out the out the out of the way but we would have said the same about Matt Trenchovitz to be to be fair but um if you run smart and you run a race to your advantage then there's always medals to be had in middle distance because people funny things happened in middle distance races well then Jodie why don't you tell us about the athlete that you spoke to because he's just a teenager and he is showing some serious smarts yeah, and what I really liked um, about speaking to him was his talk about how good, how much he thinks about tactics. It is, of course, the new European junior 800 metre champion, Oliver Dustin. Hi, I'm Jenny Meadows, and you're listening to the Backstraight Boys. Oliver, how does it feel being introduced as the European junior champion? Um, it's a pretty surreal experience, really. I think that <laughs> if you told me that 12 months ago, I wouldn't have believed you. Um, it's It's been a pretty crazy 12 months to be honest, um, and it, it's just a, it's a big honour at this point. Um, and I'm, I, it's still still taking time to sink in. Um, quite hasn't sunk in yet that I'm the best in Europe, but yeah, <laughs> it's it's an incredible feeling. Well, that was going to be my next question, actually. This time last year, um, did you expect to have that title? Because it's a bit difficult for fans to follow juniors because we don't get to see you that often, um, only at the big championships. And this was your first like made championships, wasn't it? Yeah, that's correct. Um, at this time last year, I was I was in the shape that I'd never been in before, and we kind of expected that I was going to run really fast, um, but we didn't know what everyone else was doing, the kind of level that um, the European runners could produce um, last year, and it was just a bit bit unknown really, um, but we went into the season very optimistic, and we kind of got a few races in early, and then we allowed and then we allowed ourselves to reassess and kind of identify targets. And immediately the European gold came up um, as my major target for the season. Talking about the standard in Europe, what you really mean is the standard in the UK because we had the yeah, top seven. Effectively. We had the top seven in Europe, and I think we had eight of the top ten. So never mind the European juniors. Like just getting <laughs> to be in the top three in Britain and making it into the team must have been a massive goal. Yeah, it, it definitely was. We went to Bedford for the trials and. It was an incredible race and I didn't quite get it right that day mm. and I was very fortunate to get selected in the end. Um, I, I know that, I, I fully acknowledge that I was I was lucky to get selected um, but yeah, the, the standard in Great Britain has been the best it's ever been um, in terms of mm. junior 800 metre running and we've got so much talent coming through and it's, it's, it's very exciting to be just part of that and I'm really looking forward to see what the juniors can do as we step up into the senior ranks and see if we can carry that momentum over. Because I think sometimes, first of all, let me just ask you about those trials, because when you've got so many people who've got the qualifying time, 
the trials is ultimately the most important race. You didn't get it right because you you actually came last at the trials race, but you still got still got selection. What was it that got yeah. you that selection? Um, so at the trials, I was going into the race. I knew I could have run one forty six in that race. Yeah, I knew I was in the shape to shape of my life in the shape to run one forty six, and. I didn't want to go into that race to come second. I knew Max uh-huh. was coming into great shape too. And I, I went with him and I went through the bell in low 52 seconds, which right. is faster than ever went through the bell before. And I, I really paid for it in the last lap. The last 250 was, it was, I was in s- s- incredible pain really. Um, and everyone just flew past me and they were dragging each other around to an incredible time. Mm. Um, but uh, I, didn't, I didn't quite get it right, but I said, right, I've got one last chance at Watford and it was the Watford BMC yes. Grand Prix the week after. Yeah. Um, so we headed there, um, got there, got out of the car and it was 35 degrees, 36 <laughs> degrees. And it, it was like, it was like being in Spain in the middle of a heat wave. It was, it was, the heat was just, just shocking really. Um, so that, that made me quite nervous for the race and I knew it was kind of my last chance and it was all or nothing really. And I went into the race saying, I need, First and foremost, I need to win this race to get the time. I think if I worry about the time too much, it won't happen. I need to worry about winning the race. Um, and at Watford, I kind of, I didn't get it right again. I went through the first lap in 55 seconds, which was too <laughs> slow, um, to, to run 146. So I panicked and I just I just gave it everything on the last lap. And I ended up running 146.8 mm-hmm. and it, it was... And it was definitely a reflection of what I could have done the week before. Got you. Um, so I, I, I think, but I definitely showed that I was, I was capable of running that time, and it showed to myself I was capable of running that time. And after that, it was just kind of a waiting game to see what was happening with the Euro selections. And it was a lot up in the air with Max, yeah. um, being a bit injured, and so it, I was, yeah, I was really unknown, um, as if I was going to get selected. So I was, I was fortunate enough to be selected in the end. Well, I mean, it was the right choice, obviously. Now, you've mentioned Max Bergen a couple of, couple of times, and we do have to talk about him because 145.36, not just the best in UK or Europe, but the best in the world, and only 17. So when you have someone like him in a race um, who goes out and runs 145, like you said, you, you went with him. What is it like having someone that is so dominant um, and obviously trying to pace yourself around him and run your own race? Max running so well is kind of a catalyst for everyone else to run so mm-hmm. well because you go into the race and you see Max run that time so you're like well I train I train so hard if he's capable of that I'm capable of that yeah. so that means that you everyone it just drags the standard up and everyone is competing at a much higher level yeah Max is a fantastic runner but I never intend to go in the race knowing that Max is going to beat me no. he turns up and he runs 145 and everyone's like wow this is <laughs> this is incredible and it's it's kind of demoralising a little bit as a as a competitor to Max because he's 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 running the times that you're running to get to the Olympics. He's almost yeah. running the Olympic qualifying times, but at, there comes a point where, like this year, I'm stepping up to the senior ranks, mm-hmm. so I'm going to going to be competing at against people like that, people mm-hmm. running one forty five, people running one forty four, and I think it's going to be, it's prepared me really well for that transition. Absolutely. So now, just talking about the European juniors at Boras, you went in, you were ranked second of the people at the at the championships after Ben Pattinson and then Finney McClear yeah. as well. And mm-hmm. like I said, we had the top seven runners in Europe. So you must have gone in, all three of you, expecting to get medals and all three of you fighting for the gold. 
Yeah, there, there was a certain expectancy on us to get the one, two, three. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that we all knew that if we executed our individual race plan, the one, two, three would happen. Um, I kind of learned a lot from Bedford. Yes, I was just going to say that because <laughs> you ran a very different race. I was quite surprised that the first lap was so slow. Yeah. Um, as Bedford kind of maybe exposed a weakness for me. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I was expecting a fast first lap. So I in the weeks before Boras, I prepared to run 52, 52, 52 in training. I'd just been turning out the 52 second first laps. But in the end, I didn't need that. And the first lap was... 57 hmm. high, 58 seconds. And at that point, I knew that completely played into my hands and it was kind of my race to lose from that point. Um, and I, I had every confidence in my ability to finish fast in that race. And I think that no matter the situation, I think I would have come out on top in that race because that day I felt incredible. I was, I yeah, I it was it was an incredible day and... I think that the pressure really helped me because there was a. I went into that race with no other aim than getting the gold medal, and the pressure of that race. I I respond well to pressure, to high pressure environments, and that and I think it brought out the best in me, and I I was really able to compete to the best of my ability. I mean, it was a great race. I watched it um, again last night in preparation to talking to you. And it is one of those races where you guys were head and shoulders above everybody else. And it just literally came down to the three of you on the on, in the last 100 metres and the whole British team standing there screaming for you. Um, it was a really, really good race. And I, I really urge everyone to go back and watch it again um, <laughs> because you get those kind of chills, which is the reason we watch athletics. Um, yeah. I'm old, and I'm sure people, a few people have said this to you. I'm old enough to remember the European Championships in 1986 when it was Sebco, Tom McKean and Steve Cram got the one, two, three for Britain. And there's been a lot of comparison um, to that from, from, from your race. How aware are you of people like that and the history of the sport? And um, how much does that reflect on people's performances today? Are we still comparing you to the Sebcos and the Steve Crams? I think it's a bit, bit surreal because... We're three juniors and we're being compared to the people that were the best in the world for a number of years, dominated middle distance running. They were head and shoulders above the rest, setting world records, winning Olympic Games, winning world championships, Commonwealth Games, you name it. They won everything yeah. between them. And it, it is, it is yeah, pretty fantastic be, to be compared to them. But I know that not everything's a given and... I think that there's a lot of hard work to come before I can kind of be at their level and I've got a lot of progression and a lot of training to be able to ultimately be at their level. Um I think I think there's been kind of not not as much um, success over the last few years of a middle distance running but I think that over the next few years we're really looking at a very a very good crop coming mm-hmm. through and some really good senior runners maturing really well and performing uh, at very high levels. Like you said, they've got Jake and Josh Kirk coming on the show. And yeah, I think th- th- those two are, are really fantastic runners. Um, from the performance at the World Championships, I was very, very impressed. And yep. it and it kind of it is quite inspiring because we're coming through and we have to, in effect, if we want to get to the major championships, we have to beat those runners yep. in the next few years. I think that we have a very good chance if things if people prepare well and things go our way, we have got a very good chance of kind of 
returning to the former glory days of the of the eighties. I agree, and I also think it's not really fair to compare you guys these days to people thirty five years ago in a, in what was a totally different sport. We didn't have all the African runners. We didn't have so many countries competing, mm-hmm. and it was a different time. It's it's just a completely different ball game, and yeah, I think it's a much much harder for people coming through like me. Um, and some of the old guys that have managed to make it through and compete in the major global champs, they're up against like so much more talent and the way that the training has progressed. And it we might not be running the same times as, as the 80s. And I couldn't tell you the answer why that is the case. But yeah, we're, we're definitely producing some fantastic talent and we're, we're really performing well, I think. Just talking about the people from back in the 80s and also the likes of Jake and Josh who are performing really well nowadays, who were your role models and heroes coming into athletics? When I first got into athletics, I think I was inspired by Usain Bolt. So I, oh, was, right. I was seven years old at the Beijing Olympics and I remember watching Usain Bolt run nine, was it 9.69 at Beijing and mm. it, was, it was fantastic. I... I, I remember it vividly and it was incredible. And then the year after he ran 9.58 in Berlin and I've never never seen anything like that. And I, I just thought it, the the way that he captivated the crowd, he's such a showman. He did so much for athletics and it, it was such a such a great sport to be a part of and that really enticed me in and made me want to join an athletics club and start training and just get involved and be part of that. Um, and then similarly in London twenty twelve, watching David Radisha, um, that that was one. I, that's probably the best performance ever. Um, I thought it was an incredible race, almost poetry in motion, really, and that it was so inspiring. And and similarly, like Andrew Asagi came seventh or eighth in that race, and he still still ran one forty three. It was just an incredible, incredible race. I couldn't agree more. <laughs> it was incredible. And to run a world record in an 800 metres at a championships, like from the front, is just astonishing. We were talking about um, men's middle distance and, and the history of it and how it hasn't been so um, successful in recent years. Obviously, on the women's side, um, with Kelly, Joe Pavey, Hayley Tullock, Lisa Debrisky, Hannah England and Laura recently, we've had a steady stream of really good world-class female middle distance runners and it's like literally just in the last couple of years that the men's side has stepped up as well you're still only 19 but you'll be 20 in November so you actually turn into a senior this year what are your expectations of this year obviously going into the year as the European junior champion will give you a lot of opportunities but there's also going to be a lot of competition I completely agree I'm trying to go into the year with not much pressure on myself I'm trying to kind of run just run kind of free. I've got no major competition goals in terms of under 23s. There's no World University Games this year. So there's nothing specifically to target for my age group. Um, so I've kind of moved into the senior ranks. And I'm just really looking forward to kind of testing myself against the, lev- the level up of what I've been competing and just getting involved with, with the older guys and just really looking forward to seeing what I can do. Uh, training's been going fantastic. Um, made so much progress from last year so yeah I think it's a really really exciting time and yeah I'm just I'm just going to enjoy continue to enjoy my athletics and and see where it can take me really I mean you couldn't have picked a more competitive event we had eight people with the A standard for Doha and the top two at the trials didn't even have the A standard so that's 10 people um, who are like in the mix to qualify for the major championships it was interesting what you said earlier about um, what you'd learnt from the trials into the championships because tactical running is really important 
even at more, probably more important than, than running fast times. And at the trials, you have to be very tactical. Um, so is that something that you think about as well? Not just obviously running fast, but the tactics within the race. Do you watch athletes? Do you learn their tactics and um, techniques of winning? I think tactically, that is one of the strongest aspects of of my myself competing. Um, I think that I go into every race very prepared and I always go through every sort of scenario in my head and plan very, very thoroughly of what what is going to happen in the race and kind of what I'm going to do and how I'm going to react to different situations. And I think that puts me in the best position to win the race. And yeah, I yeah, I like to do my homework effectively. And I think that if you don't do your homework, you're kind of setting yourself up to not be prepared to race. So you can't you can't pre- prepare yourself to get beat. I do really really enjoy the, the tactical eight hundred meter racing. I think it's great and it's so difficult to get it right. But I think that why that makes it so rewarding. Um, it's it's just a fantastic event. It's the most exciting event by far in my opinion. And anything can happen. Any one of those pe- eight people has a chance of winning that race. No matter how it's run out in any scenario, it's yeah, it's a complete lottery. But if you prepare the best, you give yourself the best chance of winning. Um, I'm sat here with a big smile on my face because that's music to our ears at the Backstreet Boys. Um, for, for what far too long, I mean, I suppose because we keep our eye on the British runners, but that tactically they haven't haven't been very good. And I think in the last few years, people have learned to get into the race, not to just hang around at the back on the inside and then leave too much to do. And it's been a, like it's been really good to watch. Um, the tactical awareness as well as the athletic ability of of runners. So that's really music to my ears. I've got a big grin on my face. Thank you so much for talking to us today. Um, We're really excited about you. I've loved talking to you and we're going to hopefully see you sometime this year and come and say hello. Thank you very much. Thank you. I've really appreciated it. Hi, my name is Asha Phillip and you're listening to The Backstreet Boys. I absolutely love talking to Oliver. I I mean, to be fair, and I I kind of said this to him, I'd never heard of him before the European juniors. He wasn't one of those junior athletes who are famous, who have won lots of things. He, the year before, I think it was the first um, major championship he'd been to. But go back and watch that race, everybody, everybody. And I'll post it on Twitter. But everybody go and watch that race and watch how dominant the British athletes were. There was no doubt they were going to get the one, two, three. But the way they did it and the gap they had on the rest of the field was something spectacular. And Oliver just came from behind and just like won in the in the dip. And it was such a great race. Um, so it, please go and watch the race. And it was great to talk to him. He is still a junior this year. He's he's um, 19, but he's going to be 20 in November. So he's a very, he's a very young end of seniors this year. And just to build on that, to use that experience and the um, attention you're going to get from that from that gold medal, to be able to get into races, to have the confidence to race and um, to race with people who are older and more advanced. He's he's a smart guy, and he, I loved to hear him talk about tactics. And also, I think it's not a bad thing to um, hit your best your peak as a junior in your last year as a junior. Like you don't need to be winning things at 16 and 17 yeah, and 18. Win it in your last year and keep that momentum going um so yeah i've got a lot of hope for him as i do for everyone else all those other great juniors this is jess judd and you're listening to the back straight boys i thought a nice way to bring this full circle would be for me to ask you both an impossible question um just to really put you on the spot if right now you had to predict let's say the games are going ahead your 3 800 meter runners and your three fifteen hundred meter runners on the men's side for team gb 
where would you even begin? Because I think the strength and depth that we have, the unpredictability of trials, and the fact that right now we don't know who is in form because no one's had a proper indoor season. I think if you had to punch plane tickets now for six athletes or five, if you choose someone to double up, that's a really difficult task. So are you asking who who we who we think it will be, not who we want it to be, who we think it will be, yeah? Yes, who we think will get it right, who we think will run the time <laughs> and then perform at trials and will then okay. also get selected because there are three very separate things there. So I'm going to do the 1500 just because I think it's easier um, and you have to go with Jake and Josh because not only do they got the times, they've got the championship experience. Yes. And I'm going to have to put my money on Charlie this time. I think he learned his lesson from the trials. When you're a 330 runner, um, you shouldn't be coming, you should be coming top three at the trials. And um, he is, no disrespect to the other athletes who were great and who got the championship standard last year and performed well at the, at the trials. He's five seconds faster mm. than them. So he's the guy that we want to see in the championships. And I hope that he can work out the right tactics to get himself on the plane to Tokyo, if Tokyo happens. I agree. But I'm going to say that I agree with everything you just said about Charlie. But when Chris O'Hare is in form, yeah. I trust him tactically more than anyone else. He's very so, good, isn't he? Mm. So I can't help thinking Jake, Josh and Chris... Although that's up to Charlie to just run faster than everybody else. Yeah, and then the thing the thing is with Chris, he's already run well indoors this year. He ran three thirty six forty um, indoors. Charlie didn't run. He ran. He got injured, didn't he? he turned his ankle or something. Uh, he only had. I think he only had two indoor races. Um, so it's. I suppose you can't take that tell a lot from the indoor um, form because it was a truncated season as well. Yeah, he ran three thirty eight. So um, yeah, no, I don't disagree. I don't disagree with that. Um, I'd like to see Charlie in the team though. Me too. I agree, but like. Um... I think we both think that Jake and Josh are going to make it. Um, 800 metres, I'm going to go straight out and say Andrew Asagi is in that team. How brilliant. Sorry, we haven't talked about Andrew Asagi enough this this, this winter. How no. fantastic was he in indoors? He, he looked amazing. He looked like world class. The Andrew Asagi of old. It was great. Yeah. yeah. You know, he looked, he, looked, he looked even better than the Andrew Asagi of old. He looked so smooth. He, looked, mm. he reminded me of that year um, when Kelly was in 2004, when I just had ultimate confidence in her. Andrew Asagi just looked so smooth, so in control, and I was like rubbing my hands. So Andrew is a yes. Jamie, I think, is a yes. And then I think I'm going with um, Kyle, because at his best, he really should be in the team. So Andrew, Jamie and Kyle, which is ridiculous because I could easily pick a completely different three. <laughs> That's the thing, because there you're discounting Elliot Giles, Guy Learmonth, um, yeah. all of the youngsters. Yeah. You know, because Max Bergen, yeah. he's prodigious. Oh, fast, fa- faster than all of them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So that's. do you think then the 800 metres is more contested than the 1500 Potentially, but we, we we often say this about events, don't we? We think an event's going to be a huge, like really contested, and it turns out to be a bit of a damp squib sometimes, potentially. So we'll have to wait and see. But so, but Jody, who were your three? Because I went with Andrew, Jamie, Kyle. Who are you going with? Andrew's totally thrown a pigeon in the works. Oh, sorry, a what now? Yeah. A cat amongst the pigeon. <laughs> <laughs> We've had issues with that expression before. I'm so sure that one of you has got that expression wrong before in this podcast. <laughs> He's totally thrown a, a pigeon in the works um, by running so well indoors, um, which we weren't expecting. So, I mean, yes, he looked great. Um, but once again, 
the other thing I think we have to remember next year is the qualifying is one forty five twenty, which is considerably faster yeah. than um, only for, only what Jamie, Kyle, Elliot, and Jake ran that last year. So if if it takes some people out of the equation, um, Andrew he only ran one forty six seventy one outdoors last year, which I think he's run faster than indoors this year. So that's going to be the deciding factor whether people can run that fast and obviously if tokyo happens it's going to be a lot less time to get those qualifying times in so some people might be relying on the ones from last year the last year's count um is really as it's all changed i think we're still waiting to hear exactly how they're going to change qualifying dependent on whether or not the games are held at all in the original time span and what's bizarre is how quickly the situation has escalated i spoke to jake a fortnight ago and we kind of had a teehee ho ho this coronavirus thing could affect the olympics at the end of our call spoke to josh a week later and suddenly things were being affected and now here we are recording a week after that and the whole thing is completely in, up in, the in three separate lo- in three separate locations three separate and locations honestly then. the kettle has well and truly been thrown amongst the elephants in the room so who knows what's going to happen <laughs> So the final question then, you've selected your sixes. Sorry, just to interject, Jody hasn't Jody hasn't selected his six. Jody has still not given us an 800 meter team. Have you not? Okay, based on the fact that okay, <laughs> I'm just gonna go based on the fact that we've got of the high um qualifying time. I'm gonna go with the team from last year, Kyle, Jamie and um Elliot. Elliot, that does make sense, yeah. You can't argue with any of those. I think you've both picked really strong squads. So let's assume the games are going ahead as planned. And let's assume that, you know, athletes are going there in form, people, no, no freak injuries, and people are able to get training blocks away. Are we coming back with a medal? Because all of this is really exciting. And medals, it's not all about medals. If British Athletics, if you're listening, it's not all about <laughs> medals. But let's, for now, let's make it all very podium-based. Do you think that 2020 has come a little bit too soon for this really exciting crop of runners? Or do you think they actually could deliver and we could have our first Olympic medal in decades? I would say from those six or seven that we've chosen, every single one of them, I would say, is a potential medalist. Now, I'm not going to say they're all medal favourites or even likely medalists, but I wouldn't be at all surprised if any one of those got a sneaky bronze there's always the opportunity to get a sneaky bronze at a championships. And if you're smart, and I've just said this, if you're smart about the way you run, you know the way your tactics are, and you play to your strengths in an 800 final, especially when people decide to go off too fast and die or, or, or whatever silly things people do, or take it out too slow and you've got a good sprint finish, um, just look at Kyle in London. No one going into that race would have said that he was a, a potential medalist, and he came fourth and missed a medal by the smallest of margins by running his own race so to a drug cheat mind you yeah so yeah so i mean he's actually as far as away concerned and also let's not forget that he came third over 810 meters as well in london (laughs) um, which is a wonderful achievement let's never let never let anyone take that away from kyle can i very quickly say i want all of our guys all the ones we've spoken to and all the ones that um are in the in the mix to just listen to some advice here i want you to go away i'm going to give you some homework to all of you I want you to go and watch the 1992 Olympic final where Fermin Cacho wins. I want you to go and watch the uh, 90, is it 99 and 2000 or 2000 and 2001. When is it Neil Schumann from Germany who was like 20 years old? 98 Europeans and 2000 Olympics. And then also Matt Centrovich from last time. Just to show you that not only can Europeans do it, 
but people can do it when they're not necessarily the favourite and they can do it by running their own races. 100%. And actually, whilst you're listening to Bear giving you homework, I'd like to say a thank you to the four athletes <laughs> that came on, to Jake, to Josh, to Jamie and to Oliver. Thank you for giving us your time and giving providing such invaluable insight. And I think what was fascinating was hearing just how much it echoed through all four interviews that British success is breeding British success and that this is a really exciting time and that's actually only going to continue. And also thank you for giving us some inspiration to be excited by the middle distance, mm. men's middle distance. Yeah, exactly having true. spoke to them and having listened to their interviews and having done this podcast, we're going to be watching all of the 800 and the 1500 much more carefully over this, over this um, coming summer, if we have a summer. And by um, extension of that, we're going to be more interested in the men's 1500 and 800 metres. Oh, that's a funny phrase to ever come out of my mouth. <laughs> so, yeah, they've done us all a big favour. Thank you very much. And I believe you're going to be marking the occasion of this podcast release for something on Twitter, Jodie. What was that? Because I've got nothing to do with myself and because this is coming out and because I've now got a newfound interest in the men's uh, middle distances, I'm going to have a Twitter thread, which I want everyone to join in. I'm going to be posting vi- videos of my top 10 British male middle distance running um, performances of all time. So if everyone would like to join in, let us know their favourite um, middle distance men's performances. Myself, Bayo and Claire <laughs> will be posting our favourite videos. And where can they find you on Twitter if they're looking to get involved? At Backstraight B. Very good. I'm at Claire underscore G Thomas. I'll be chiming in as well because I'm an absolute middle distance nose. You can find <laughs> the boys on Instagram, Bayo at... Backstraight Boys Podcast. Hooray! Very, very good. And you can find this podcast and indeed a whole archive, a whole treasured trove of Backstraight Boys content on whichever platform you use to access your podcast. Please leave us a review. We absolutely love reading them and we are always looking to get better. Claire, didn't we get a great review the other day? We did get a lovely review the other day. Should we quickly bore the listeners with it? (laughs) This, honestly, this made my day. Melanat. Uh, she gave us five stars, described us as a must listen and confessed that she often listens when jogging and must look like a mad cackling woman as she doubles over with laughter at some of the comments. She loves our passion and knowledge <laughs> and the in-depth interviews in which she hears directly from great athletes. Yay. And she signed off with, and I love this, geez, I sound like a groupie. Yay! <laughs> so thank you very much for listening to our Backstraight Middle Distance special. Here's to some athletics of any description over the next few months but especially within that the exploits of our brilliant middle distance runners on the men's side of things here in Great Britain you are fabulous you are increasingly tactically astute and we cannot wait to see you thrive Mm